The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, over the past few weeks, we've seen some drama play out in Zambia between the local Chinese community and Zambian Mayor Miles Sampa. And it's really been quite remarkable to watch what's been going on over there. Let me take you back about three or four weeks. And Mayor Sampa, he went on a series of raids of different Chinese-owned businesses that were purportedly uh, discriminating against locals, uh, black patrons in particular, and only serving Chinese. So it started with the Lantian restaurant which was allegedly allegedly not serving local patrons and and people Africans would go in or Zambians would go in and they would be told no the restaurant's closed and then Chinese would go in and it would be open and in fact this was all brought to everybody's attention when a couple one Chinese one uh, Zambian went in and they only served the Chinese so the mayor went down there and shut it down and there was a lot of talk about this on social media, people were very happy about it. He then went later on to shut down a factory that was owned by the Chinese that reportedly locked employees in in order to prevent them from becoming infected with COVID-19. That too got a lot of attention. And then the big one was when he shut down a barbershop in uh, in Lusaka. And he walked into this Chinese-owned barbershop and it was a f- where, and he, he conducted this kind of sting where they, they sent in again fake customers who said, I want to get a haircut. They effectively said, no, 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 we're closed. You can't, uh, we, we don't serve. And then a Chinese person went in and they offered them a, bar, a haircut. Miles Sampa then went in right afterwards with a phone recording, someone recording it, and this is what ensued. Why we should continue allowing you to operate in the city when you are showing appetite, stopping blacks? from doing business in here. Okay? Yeah, this one no understand. understand English have taken our council license and we are going to write to you, we are revoking them. No business here, you are closed now. Because not even Chinaman here, the one you are cutting was where? No, No cutting here, brother, go and cut here at home. You are closed now. Yeah, this no problem. Yes, already closed. Yeah, already closed. But so, so if it's closed, what are you doing inside? For the, me and this family and for this family, yeah. cooking. Me home, no for this cooking. Close. I'm coming yes. back in one hour. If I find you, I'll get you arrested for operating illegally because our license we have taken. Because you are discriminating blacks and closing and only attending to Chinese and stopping blacks. You lie that you've closed, but you are doing business here with Chinese. There's no segregation. This license doesn't permit you. And also putting the prices in Chinese, it's illegal. Put in English. If you want, put in Nyanja. This is not Wuhan. Wow, that was very provocative. This is not Wuhan. He then used a, a, a Chinese slur in there, which I won't repeat, but he then went on to 
apologize for that and apologize for the raids. But what it did in social media and in the broader discourse was perpetuate this idea, and again, we're going to find out today if it's actually true, that Chinese in Africa and Chinese communities, despite the fact that we're now going into the second decade of the modern kind of uh, immigration phase, a uh, wave of Chinese in Africa, are not assimilating. And Cobus, it really kind of brings and plays into a narrative that the Chinese are the other in Africa and, again, don't assimilate into the local communities. Yes, it plays into that narrative, definitely. Um, it also plays into another narrative, which is that the Chinese are essentially the same as European colonizers, or the, the new iteration of, an, of, an, of a pattern of colonization and separa separatism within the country. And of course, in Africa, that is extremely sensitive. It's, a, it's extremely controversial. Um, and, you know, kind of it raises a lot of suspicion around what, what Chinese communities are busy with in Africa. So we wanted to get a perspective on what these events recently in Lusaka, how do they necessarily apply to the broader discussion about Chinese assimilation in Africa as a whole? And two researchers, uh, Professor Yen Hairong from the Hong Kong Polytechnic University and Barry Soutman, a uh, social science professor at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, have recently completed a new uh, project on that very topic and had an article, We Wanted to Know If Chinese Migrants in Africa Self-Segregate what we found, and we want to welcome both back to the program. Thank you for joining us from Hong Kong this afternoon. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Uh, Hai let's start with you. Uh, both of you guys worked on this research together, but what did you find and in, in, in what did you set out to explore when it comes to looking at Chinese self-segregation in various African countries? And to be clear, you didn't just focus on Zambia. Uh, you said that you looked at uh, the situation in Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, and Sudan as well. What were some of your findings? Yeah, we have been doing, Barry and I, we have been doing research for over a decade. And uh, uh, in, the in the past uh, years of our research, we have traveled, have done field research in a variety of uh, African countries, in Eastern Africa, in Southern Africa. And uh, um, so in every um, site that we have uh, researched, we usually, we are very interested in the question of how Chinese localize uh, to what extent they interact with uh, local people, doing business, um, forming relation, varieties of social relations, um, their uh, perceptions of uh, local people, etc. So, um, and we have done a lot of interviews. Um, including surveys, actually, among um, both um, Chinese and uh, one of our research collaborators also had done research, uh, done, done survey uh, of Zambians, um, in this case, uh, of Zambian perception of Chinese interaction with Zambians. Uh, we actually find that uh, um, how Chinese localized really has a lot to do with um, the type of business they have, uh, understandably, for Chinese who work for very large Chinese companies uh, as managers or as skilled workers, uh, their lodgings have been provided by the company. And, uh, and also because their working hours uh, are usually um, pretty long and uh, um, they are interaction with local people are very much constricted and uh, limited to workplace interaction. Um, they uh, they don't have very much interactions with people outside their workplace, and uh, for the 
there is also, of course, a process in this. Uh, initially, Chinese, uh, we have interviewed Chinese who have said that initially they're very much uh, curious about local ways of life, interacting with local colleagues. They paid visit to their homes and bringing gifts with them. But uh, eventually they find that uh, uh, this doesn't seem to be uh, working very well. And also, you know, some of them would go out in the evening um, to to the local pubs. And uh, because of language, language barriers, they might get into fights with people. And uh, these sort of things are usually taken very, very seriously by the company leadership or by Chinese embassy. So um, then company policies become established that after certain hours in the evening, one couldn't go out. Or if you need to go out, then you need to get approval from your superior so that, uh, uh, you know, it's actually uh, recorded. Um, so there are restrictions also for uh, employees of very large companies. Now, for Chinese migrants uh, who migrate on their own, who are not contract workers or contract employees, then the situation is very different because the type of business they run, uh, usually in trade or even small-scale manufacturing, uh, then they do interact with local people a lot. Um, or if you run Chinese restaurants, if you run Chinese clinics, then you interact with local customers quite a bit, uh, almost on a daily basis. So I think that type of interaction would, then would be very different. So depending on what kind of Chinese you're talking, you're talking about, the level of interaction with local people is a bit different. Barry, um, could you put this research in, into a wider context? In, in the in the conversation article, um, you guys mentioned that you know that that there's a this idea that the Chinese population in Africa is self segregating, is frequently used as a kind of a weapon against China Africa relations as a whole, frequently by Western critics. Um, how have you seen that discourse? You know, kind of evolve over the years. Well, I think uh, as the antagonism displayed by elites in the U.S. toward China has increased. Of course, this theme, along with many other themes uh, that are designed to denigrate the Chinese presence in Africa, has been increased so that uh, you'll frequently see references in Western media, but particularly in American media, to the idea that uh, Chinese go to Africa, never interact with local people, hire only other Chinese, and have no interest at all in uh, local culture. But um, our findings, based upon extensive interviews in several different African countries, indicate that actually um, most Chinese are interested to some extent, and some of them to a very large extent in local culture, that they want to interact with local people. Those of them who are in jobs where uh, local culture is a prerequisite to effective uh, operation, they uh, will quite devotedly try to uh, infuse themselves with those necessary elements of local culture, particularly language, in order to be able to communicate with local people. I mean, one of the things that we found in doing comparative study of the uh, white Indian and uh, Chinese populations in Zambia was that uh, actually the Chinese population was more inclined to learn local languages 
than either the Indian or white population. And this is probably true uh, on an Africa-wide basis as well. Uh, in addition, I think that uh, the idea that Chinese uh, want to self-segregate in Africa uh, is part of a very long-standing yellow peril conception that's actually been around since the 19th century in the West. If you look at the discourses that existed in Canada, the United States, South Africa, Britain, etc., uh, the whole of the Anglosphere from the late 19th century uh, through the first half of the 20th century, one of the most common themes was that uh, Chinese wanted to self-segregate, that they were clannish, uh, that they had a sense of superiority toward other peoples, etc. But actually, the reason why Chinese were segregated in these places was because of white racism. That is, uh, they lived on their own amongst each other because they were not allowed to disperse then to other parts of the uh, country. And uh, they saw that as an element of protection as well against the uh, attacks, physical attacks that often would occur against them. So the revival of this idea in the 21st century in the context of uh, the framing of the discourse about China and Africa has its precedence in yellow peril ideology. So, Hyrung, if that's the case, that what Barry is saying is that it's not, and what your research seems to conclude is that the perceptions and the reality are very different, how do you explain what Miles Sampa was responding to in uh, Lusaka, where they're apparently, and again, I wasn't there, so I can't tell for sure, but apparently there are barbershops that have signs only in Chinese and prices only in Chinese. There are restaurants that only want to cater to Chinese. Uh, the mayor is implying that this is a broader problem, not just an exceptional, uh, these one or two establishments that are trying to do this. Uh, is, does that align with your research or put some context for what we saw in Lusaka and what others, and again, we've seen this problem also in Nairobi and in Lagos as well, so it's not even exceptional. Are those just outliers or does that represent something that is not necessarily being picked up in your research? In our experience of doing research in Zambia, uh, in Lusaka included, uh, we actually have never experienced a uh, this kind of situation. Uh, the restaurant, the Chinese restaurants we have visited uh, tend to have, um, almost every time we went, they had a, a few Zambian um, customers as well. In fact, one of the largest Chinese restaurants had, um, in I think would be one, uh, a quarter of the customers being Zambian sometimes. So um, so the situation that was reported in the me in, in social media uh, in regarding to a Chinese restaurant, um, I find that to be uh, quite odd. Um, if it did happen, it, it, may, it, it is exceptional. And uh, as to the barber shop, um, I think the barbershop thing is a, um, it is a niche market, in fact. Um, this may be, I think this is the first Chinese, I mean, formal Chinese um, barbershop that uh, had existed in, in Lusaka. Previously, Chinese, if they needed a high haircut, they help each other out. You know, there wasn't any, you know, formally established barbershop. 
Um, so, um, so this barber barbershop itself, I think it's not looking to indeed um, service everybody. And uh, as far as I understand, to cut people different types of hair, you do need different different types of uh, skill sets. And I think this Chinese barber shop just doesn't. Um, there are a lot of uh, barbershops that serve lo local Zambians and uh, just one, um, as far as I know, just one that's serving Chinese. So I wouldn't uh, make too big a deal about, you know, there's only one barbershop which only serves Chinese. And uh, most likely the Chinese barber, he doesn't have the skill even to, to treat um, you know, local people's hairstyle. So um, I am... Uh, my understanding of the situation is something like that. Well, what I would add is that actually what Miles Sampa, the mayor of Lusaka, did in this instance was something very familiar to us because in 2014, the uncle of Miles Sampa, uh, Michael Sata, became president of Zambia. And when he became president, he appointed as his minister of labor a man named Chishimba Kambwili, uh, who is from the Copper Belt region of Zambia and represented the most extreme of anti-Chinese sentiment within the Patriotic Front, which is the ruling party in Zambia since 2014. One of the things which Kambwili did almost immediately after being appointed Minister of Labor was he did exactly what Miles Sampha did in 2020. That is, he did surprise visits to various Chinese-run uh, enterprises, uh, factory, a medical clinic, um, a restaurant, and other places. And he, he did the, the same thing as was done by Miles Sampa, that is, accused uh, the Chinese owners of doing something which was especially exploitative or discriminatory um, against local employees. Uh, actually, this caused a pretty big commotion. It caused a uh, it caused difficulties in the relationship uh, between China and Zambia, and uh, the result of it all was, in the end, that Kambwili was fired as Minister of Labor. He was uh, moved over to the position of. Uh, foreign minister where he did, uh, well, he didn't last long there either, just a matter of a few months. Uh, and then he was finally made the spokesman for uh, the ruling party. And he's still around as a politician. But uh, the point of all of this is that it served the political ambitions of Kambwili well to do this. And he picked out his targets, I think, knowing full well that whatever the practice was there, uh, it was either exceptional or uh, there was really no basis to making the claims that he did at all. But he just went ahead and did it because it was beneficial to him politically. Uh, for example, uh, Kambwili went to a clinic where there were quite a number of employees, all of whom were Zambian, and there was one Chinese working there, and uh, Kambwili focused all of his attention on attacking this Chinese, knowing well that in the region where he's from, particularly in the Copper Belt, there would be some, something politically to be gained by doing that. So I think one has to take the claims being made by uh, 
mild sampa with a grain of salt, and one has to put them in the context of the domestic politics of uh, Zambia, where mild sampa is almost certainly hoping to eventually become the president of the country, and. Uh, taking advantage of the fact that there still remains a section of the Zambian population that is deeply suspicious of the Chinese presence. So he is, in a way, taking the same road as Donald Trump takes in playing to his base. And uh, that means that we have to look at each instance uh, in which there's an accusation made and determine whether or not it corresponds to something which is empirically true or not. Hi, Rong. Um, I wonder how um, how discourses of crime, particularly within Chinese communities, factor into this. So to just give a little bit of, of context, um, you know, I, I recently um, co-edited a book um, which is about anxiety in Johannesburg, um, and Mingwei Wang, um, who we've had on the on the podcast before, she did amazing research on that on Chinese communities in Johannesburg, um, showing that you know kind of that discourses around crime and fears of crime is leading to replications of apartheid you know kind of spatial patterns in within houses you know where where there's there's uh, like racial segregation between between black servants and Chinese business owners are kind of replicated, you know, kind of with, within houses, um, households, Chinese households in Johannesburg. And we have to also just, you know, kind of just to to point out that that South Africa is in, in a difficult situation in the sense that it both has, a, legitimately has a real big crime problem and discourse around crime is at the same time highly race, racialized and coded and used as a coded way to keep black people out of certain spaces. So, um, and and she showed, if, I, if I'm not, I hope I'm not mis- misrepresenting her work, but like she, she essentially showed that that a lot of those kind of discursive patterns were taken over by, you know, both discursive and architectural patterns were taken over by Chinese communities and are now being replicated in a kind of a, a kind of a Chinese version of some of South Africa's like crime-related segregation and and paranoia kind of you know kind of psychoses. Um, so I wonder like how how like fears of crime and discourses around crime are used as a segregational kind of tool in in Chinese communities in Africa? As far as we see in Zambia, um, Chinese actually are having a pattern of residence uh, in the city, in the city of Osaka, which we call a big dispersal and small concentration. Um, So if you, we actually have a map of uh, of Chinese residents in in Lusaka, and they're pretty much spread out uh, in the city. Uh, they're found in every city district, um, and they're so spread out that sometimes it's actually a li- little difficult for them to coordinate certain things. In the uh, how, but luckily now there is social media, so things are you know, a lot of things are happening on social media itself. Um, as to the crimes um, and or the awareness, sensitivity about uh, crimes, I think to some extent um, Chinese may feel especially vulnerable um, because they don't have they don't have local roots. Um, they don't really have local political force. Um, they know they are sojourners to some extent. They're migrants, um, so they they feel especially vulnerable. You know, politicians in Zambia, for example, uh, Michael Sata used to you know threaten to kick them out 
Um, so th- there's nobody <laughs> speaking for them sometimes. Uh, it's, it's difficult. So th- I think there's that political sense of uh, uh, vulnerability. There is also the economic sense of vulnerability in the sense of the, because a lot of Chinese are migrant um, SMEs, small, medium-sized um, business people. So they, their business necessarily involve cash. And that also make them more of a easy target. So I think in in that sense they do feel also quite vulnerable. Um, but I, as far as we know, we have not seen the kinds of uh, racial segregation that may happen in South Africa. Um, Chinese residents are very much spread out in the city, but Chinese have organized themselves in terms of the crime watch. Um, Online, it's a form of online uh, kind of organization. Um, so that if anybody happens, then you know people in in their district uh, will form kind of social media group, and they'll be alerted. And there are a lot of warnings being sent out around about you know something happening here. We need rescue, or we need uh, some kind of coordinated efforts, etc. So there is that kind of online mobilization organization, um, but there isn't any um, physical spatial segregation um, as far as we know. Barry, one of the themes that emerged in the wake of the the events in Guangzhou, where there were well-documented instances of anti-Black, anti-African, anti-African-American discrimination in southern China, and not just in Guangzhou, but in other Chinese cities as well, was this, and this was particularly prominent on African social media, was, well, there are so many Chinese who are now living in Africa that their lives are now going to become more difficult. Did you see, or have you seen, any repercussions among migrant communities in Africa in response to the events of Guangzhou in April? So far, I don't think there's any grave impact uh, from the events in Guangzhou. That is, uh, thus far, there's been a lot of talk about how uh, Africans in Africa will have paid attention to the discrimination that you just described and that they'll be more hostile toward Chinese as a result. But thus far, there doesn't really appear to be any particular action taken in that regard. Maybe there's an assumption on the part of politicians, though, like Miles Sampa in Zambia, that uh, Africans in Africa are particularly agitated about uh, what went on in Guangzhou. But the authorities in Guangzhou did, I think, um, first of all, make mistakes by not... uh, having a handle on what the landlords of Guangzhou were doing, for example, with regard to African tenants, and not having a handle about how to properly test uh, the African population with regard to the virus. But uh, once this was uh, this became a substantial issue, which had international repercussions. Then either they or their bosses uh, ensured that some active steps were taken to rectify the situation. Of course, we don't know yet the extent to which the situation has actually been rectified, but it seems like um, it's been at least partially dealt with, and that may 
have some effect in terms of uh, lessening the degree to which people in Africa would be especially concerned about that. There doesn't seem to, for example, have to, to be any particular reluctance on the part of uh, people of Africans in China to stay in China. And I don't think there's been any indication that Africans in Africa who might be thinking about going to China when they have the opportunity again have been dissuaded from doing so by what occurred in Guangzhou. Hai um, Rong, if you look at the at your long term research, because you obviously you've been engaged with with uh, Chinese communities in Africa of, over over a long time, what what are, what are the kind of trends you're seeing in relation to integration? Like, are, are they as a whole? And I, I know this is a very wide kind of brush question, um, but as a whole, do they seem to be integrating more, or, or, or do they settle at some some level of integration and don't really go beyond that? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think maybe one the characteristics of Chinese presence in Africa is that it's not stable. Uh, by uh, so it, un, a bit unlike the earlier my Chinese migration to North America or to other places to Europe, perhaps um, Chinese in in Africa they uh, some of them will stay in Africa for some time and they migrate also from one African country to another African country chasing business opportunities. Um, or they might actually go back to China or maybe go to some other countries or continents. So in that sense, um, they are not um, not very stable. Um, the other thing that's not stable is sometimes when uh, there, there are newcomers coming. So while some maybe some of the older uh, migrants might return to China for family family related um, life cycle <laughs> kinds of events, um, then the new ones are coming. So you might constantly experience some of the raw encountering or raw interactions that we might see. Uh, so in that sense, then it's a little hard to describe Chinese presence in Africa as a stable. A community that will be, you know, be there for uh, after 20 years, it's growing to 30 years to 40 years. Um, my, I think the presence will continue for sure. Uh, however, who are the migrants in uh, in Africa? And then that changes. Um, so uh, the earlier generation who've been in Africa so f- since 1990s, now they're facing the uh, life cycle. <laughs> um, point uh, in which they are thinking about retiring. Maybe they are doctors, maybe they are business people. Now, who's going to inherit their business? Do they have anybody to inherit their business? Um, maybe so, maybe not. Uh, so I think they are planning that generation, those ones who arrived in, in, in Africa in 1990s, they are in, at the point of thinking about their future uh, to be in Africa or to be in China. Um, so again, that highlights the instability to some extent of the Chinese migrants um, in in Africa. Um, however, for for them, if you actually interview them, 
it's hard for them to actually really pinpoint uh, at what point they will return. Uh, that's like a, a constant deferral uh, to some extent. And that's because um, while they always imagine that at some point they would return to China, the possibility of doing so um, is a bit getting a bit slimmer for them uh, because their social contacts in China, their social relations and network, etc., cetera, uh, while still being minimally maintained, um, it's not really as sort of everyday intimate as, um, as they would like. And also their experience, their social network, their relationships in local places in, in Africa uh, has been growing over years. So why they always hold the homeland as a place, as a point of return uh, as to when they might do it, it's hard for them to say. Uh, Barry, let's pick up on what Hyrong was saying in terms of the instability of the population. Back in, I, I think it was 2017, 2018, a couple of years ago, you were quoted in the Financial Times suggesting that the China, the Chinese population, the migrant community in Africa peaked somewhere around 2015 and has been steadily declining since then. Uh, lots of reasons, economic factors, the fact that also um, Chinese now can migrate to lots of different places on the Belt and Road. There's opportunities beyond Africa. And now we also have COVID-19 that's playing a factor on all this. Can you talk to us a little bit about where you think the numbers are today of Chinese migrants in Africa uh, since 2015? And what impact is COVID-19 having on some of the trends that Hyrong was talking about in terms of the instability of this migrant community? Well, in terms of the numbers, uh, of course, for a long time, people were saying there were one million Chinese in Africa. And actually, I, over the years, I've kept a little chart in which I record uh, the estimates by country of the number of Chinese. And indeed, uh, the it, it, around 2015, there were probably somewhere between 700,000 and 900,000 Chinese in Africa. Um, but since then, I don't see that there has been any increase, and there may, in fact, be a decrease. And the decrease, I think, comes from a variety of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons, I think, is that uh, the prospects of being able to stay long-term uh, in a viable way in many African countries have actually declined. Uh, the, the competition... Uh, from other Chinese ha grew, grew almost geometrically in the 2000s and the earlier part of the second decade of the century. Uh, but also there were um, uh, th there was a substantial closing of some opportunities uh, in some industries in different parts of Africa and less of a prospect that people could live out their lives uh, in an African country without encountering uh, some big obstacle. So there are actually have been only a few African countries where there has been a Chinese population that uh, could at least in part anticipate that they could stay for decades in the country without encountering some big crisis. Uh, South Africa is certainly one of those countries. South Africa has perhaps uh, 300,000 Chinese, and a lot of them have the idea that they will stay indefinitely 
in uh, South Africa. Now, they may go back to China when they're really uh, advanced in age, but uh, they'll spend their working life in South Africa, and many of them will become South African citizens. And the same thing might be true with regard to a significant part of the Chinese population in Egypt, many of whom are Muslims. Uh, and it may be true to a little bit of an extent in Nigeria as well. But in other African countries, it is still very much the case that the level of Chinese population is a function of the uh, opportunities economically for Chinese to move there, be there for a while, and then move back to China or move to some other part of Africa or perhaps even further abroad. So I don't actually see uh, that the Chinese population of Africa uh, will get much higher than one-tenth of one percent of the continent's population. And uh, if it does get much higher, it would only be uh, after perhaps a long period of uh, cooperation between China and African countries through the Belt and Road and other mechanisms uh, that uh, may result in more confidence on the part of Chinese that they can actually settle in a more or less permanent way uh, in African countries. The article is, we wanted to know if Chinese migrants in Africa self-segregate what we found. Let me cut to the chase and do a spoiler alert for you. They write, the accusation of Chinese self-isolation in Africa does not mesh with reality. If you want to find out what Yen Hairong, assistant associate professor at Hong Kong Polytechnic University and Barry Soutman uh, from Hong Kong University of Science and Technology found, we'll put a link in the show notes to the article and you can find it on the conversation. Uh, professor Soutman, Professor Yen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Our pleasure. You're very welcome. If you're interested in these China-Africa topics in the kind of detail that we're talking about them today, uh, you would love our daily email newsletter that Kobus and I are putting out. It is a deep dive every single day, Monday to Friday, in all aspects of the China-Africa relationship. So as the Miles-Sampa events were unfolding, within 24 hours, we had analysis, we had all the clips, we have all of that. That's the kind of coverage that you get in our daily email newsletter. If you'd like to try it out, go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. And because you're a loyal, dedicated podcast listener and you've made it all the way to the end of the program, uh, enter the, pod, the promo code podcast uh, when you check out and we'll give you a really, really big discount. So uh, you can find out how much when you do that. And you can try it out for free for two weeks. If you don't like it, just cancel anytime, and that would uh, not be a problem at all. Okay, that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs> <laughs>